Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Physical Attractions Coronavirus Updates. As usual, I want to shower you with a lot of disclaimers at the start. I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist or even a biologist. Everything that I say, I will try and provide a source for so you can check it out for yourself. Uh, it will either clearly be my own opinion or rooted in one of these sources. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't make mistakes or indeed come to be proved wrong by new evidence as it arises. And a lot of these studies that are qu we're quoting are preprints, which means that they have not been peer-reviewed by the scientific literature. And of course the situation is evolving so fast that things that seemed right a few weeks ago can seem wrong fairly quickly afterwards. This show is going to be really eclectic and it's going to be a mammoth episode because there are lots of different areas that I want to cover fairly quickly. So I hope you don't mind something a bit more rapid fire and a bit less narrative than I normally do. Some of these things will be updates on previous episodes, and we also have an interview with a friend of mine who is part of the Oxford vaccine trial. I'm going to start with a little bit about the vaccine in the interview, mostly because I imagine this is going to be the most interesting bit, so you can all switch off when it's over. Uh, and there's just a reminder, you can contact me about anything on physicspodcast.com, the contact form there. Okay. First off, the global situation. The COVID-19 pandemic has now spread to more or less every country in the world, so it needs no introduction. In the UK and the US, which are the nations whose politics and news I'm most attuned to, we're now starting to try to relax the initial lockdown measures that were in place to control the virus. I'm not going to go to the interview that I did with my friend Diana, who has volunteered for the Oxford vaccine trial. So a quick reminder, this is the vaccine that's called Chadox-1 NCOV-19. It's made from a virus, the Chadox-1, which is a weakened version of a common cold virus, adenovirus, that causes infection in chimpanzees. So it's a chimpanzee adenovirus, that's where you get the Chad from. And this has been genetically changed, so it's impossible for it to grow in humans. Specifically, they have changed the outside of this virus to mimic the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, which is used by the virus to bind to ACE2 receptors on cells to enter and infect those cells. The idea then is that the immune response to this vaccine will resemble the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 and that it will give vaccinated people some protection against the new virus. Without further ado then, the interview. Hello, how are you doing? Would you like to introduce yourself to listeners of the show? Um, sure, well thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, first things first, uh, I am your friend. We are friends. Uh, so this is very much a, a biased interview. Um, I am Diana. I'm a fellow uh, DPhil student. Um, and I know you because we're in the same cohort. And because I'm in Oxford now, I have been participating in the Oxford vaccine trials. Um, how has the pandemic impacted you so far, would you say? Well, I mean, same as everyone else. I'm just in social isolation um because i'm an experimentalist uh the lab and the labs have been closed my project has been impacted in the sense that well i can't do my experiments so i've just been working on data analysis and writing up and trying to stay as sane as possible and some of my international travel um has been impacted as well yeah i mean it, it uh, staying as sane as possible is basically what everyone's trying to do in their own way at the moment i think how are um, you managing so how am i managing oh you don't yeah. even want to know <laughs> um, so well, tell us about signing up for the trial then I mean obviously you have motivations behind like wanting to help us get out of this situation as soon as possible but what sort of fed into your decision to do it I mean don't put words in my mouth maybe I'm just in for the cash <laughs> <laughs> oh is there cash is there cash involved I didn't know about that yeah yeah so I mean essentially since the pandemic my social media consumption has increased especially Twitter and I saw on Twitter some ads for the recruitment for the trials. I saw them shared by fellow, you know, academics, people that I know from Oxford. I saw them on the, you know, kind of university official account as well. Um, so I kind of clicked the link. I saw what the requirements were. Um, and I said, well, I should at least sign up for the pre-screening to see if I even make it. Right. 
because the first phase is a pre-screening phase, um, as, as it is legally required for all trials. Um, and yes, there is cash involved as well. So when you say pre-screening, we should probably clarify that this is like making sure that you don't have any really severe health conditions or anything along the lines where you simply couldn't be vaccinated with something experimental like this. And perhaps, yeah. And I mean, even even more uh, basing than that. So for example, for females, it's a legal requirement to take a urine sample to see that you're not pregnant. Um, and it is a legal requirement to check that you don't have pre-existing conditions, hypertension, or uh, diabetes, or liver failure, or anything that might go under the radar, asthma, and just a bunch of other things. So I did um, blood sample analysis and a urine test for the pre-screening. Okay, and they basically then, the next stage was they said, okay, that's come back all normal. And uh, what's what's the sort of atmosphere like talking to the researchers? Because obviously these people have kind of found themselves, I mean, obviously they were doing important work before. People were working on the MERS coronavirus vaccine in this same Oxford group. But now they found themselves thrust into, I guess, the centre of the biggest story of the decade, if not maybe the century so far, you know. So how, what what was the atmosphere like? How was it talking to them? And uh hearing about their work did they did they talk about it that much or were they quite guarded um i mean i'm not sure what you mean by guarded um i think i mean the information sheet the information that's on the website um the official website that you should put in the description mm-hmm. <laughs> um so it, it was quite clear for me so and the information sheet that they sent around was clear enough when i arrived there everything was like really professionally done um, and there was a workflow put in place so that social distancing um, guidelines were respected. Uh, so, and I was really impressed by that. I was really impressed by how smooth and streamlined everything was. But then again, this is in, this isn't their first trial. Like, okay, it's the first time they trialed this substance in this formulation. But in terms of the practicalities and the logistics of the trial, they're they're world experts of doing this. Um, so for them, you know, the organization and data management and information and recruitment, it's very much a standard procedure. So and, and it's looked like they've done this a bunch of times before, um, which they have done because that's what they specialize in at the Jenner Institute. No, of course, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, once you got the uh, test back that said, OK, you're suitable for this, um, they set a date for you to get the vaccine. So t- tell us about that and, and the process of actually getting administered with the vaccine and uh, also the different trial groups in terms of uh, because you don't know necessarily whether you've got this vaccine or some sort of dummy vaccine, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the whole point is that you have to record your own symptoms um, and then someone interprets that data. So then if they know what, you, what vaccine you have, or if you know what vaccine you have, you might be biased in the reporting because of the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. So in order to compensate for this, uh, well, to counteract this placebo effect, um, there's a meningitis vaccine and the corona vaccine that they're trying, the CHAD-OX vaccine they're trying to test. Um, and I don't know which one I have. So on the day... Beautiful day outside, take a walk, get to the hospital. And again, everything was like super streamlined, super, um, it was like super efficient and optimized. Uh, They were definitely, no, they definitely knew what they were doing and everything was really organized. I went again through checks. I went again through, you know, having my vitals taken. Um, I gave some blood before the vaccine was administered. Uh, another pregnancy test because I, you know, 
I'm just in case in the intervening couple weeks, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. None of that. None. Zero. <laughs> um, but they are legally required to do it. So of course. Um, um, and then the vaccine administration was just like, oof, just like a uh, like a mosquito bite. It was really simple. And then I was just and really fast. Uh, the, the the checks beforehand and the information briefing beforehand and the blood taking beforehand took way longer. And then after the vaccine administration, of course, I didn't know what I got and the person administrating it to me didn't know what she gave me. Um, so then I was under observation for um, half an hour. So you basically just go in a room, again, socially distanced. And I had a book with me because I, I was expecting to have to wait for for a bit. Mm-hmm. So I would just be I was reading and then they made us watch a video about how to fill out the e-diary they have to fill out every day. And then after some, after watching the video and kind of being around uh, medical professionals, someone else took my pulse um, and my temperature and my symptoms and they looked at the vaccination site and it recorded all that. And then that was it. I was ready to go. Great. So they sort of made sure that you didn't have some sort of immediate allergic reaction, which is, I guess, the kind of thing they're worried about with this stuff. And then they've sent you on your way. And now, so when was that? That was about a week ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was It was like nine days ago. Okay, nine days ago. And you've been filling in this diary every day. And so far, I guess, nothing to report? I mean, why would I report to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> uh, I've been feeling just normal, like really can't tell the difference between my pre-vaccination life and symptoms and you know how i feel in my body compared to post-vaccination yeah and i guess you would never really know like no manifestation of superpowers all of a sudden uh, no possibility that you know that the only thing that might happen is you may or may not get coronavirus at some point over the next few months and that will tell you something about whether you're immune or not yeah i do not have superpowers that is very disappointing but have you did you tell your listeners about the the results from the monkey study yeah so i i think i'm not sure whether this is going to be in this episode that i'm putting out now or in a previous episode but yeah this vaccine has actually been confirmed to work in rhesus monkeys which is obviously supposed to be a human analog um now i can't give you guys data straight away on how often it is that a vaccine does seem to work in monkeys but doesn't work in humans um i think the point that's worth making here is that there's a thing called a challenge trial which you can do in vaccines where you vaccinate someone with a vaccine candidate and then to test whether it works you expose them to the virus straight away straight after and they will do that with really well-tested vaccines like the malaria vaccine uh, the tb vaccine both of these the jenner institute does challenge trials and i know people who've done those but in the case of this one um, where they're trying something that's really quite experimental and perhaps is more likely i would say for this particular vaccine candidate it seems to me like this errs on the side of safety so it's more likely to be safe but it's actually less likely to work than some of the other vaccine candidates that are being trialed at the moment Um, and given that it's less likely to work and more likely to be safe by itself it's unethical for them to introduce people to the SARS-CoV-2 virus to test this but of course the same ethics doesn't apply to the rhesus monkeys that they use versus the humans so this is a vaccine that has worked when monkeys have been challenged with the virus and they haven't been infected so again, I don't know what what likelihood that means that it's actually uh, protecting people against that. Um, but that's what we're going to find out over the course of the next few weeks or months, I suppose. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also worth mentioning that um, when they first announced it, they were doing uh, 500 people um, in total. They're recruiting 510 people in total. And now they're recruiting a thousand and a bit. Um, so they've doubled um, the size of the volunteers that they're recruiting. And I think it's probably because they, they might have gotten more funding. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, and they also have a contract uh, with um, a pharmaceutical company for mass production. AstraZeneca, case, right? Yeah, yeah, in, yeah in, in case the vaccine works. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that's one of the interesting things that's, sorry, that's one of the interesting things that's shown up in this vaccine development is this whole idea of, well, it takes five years typically for a vaccine to, to be, uh, well, actually it takes on average 10 years for a vaccine to be produced and start working. Five years is the record for Ebola. Where can you cut corners? And in this case, they're sort of trying to squish all of the trials together and do them as quickly as possible. And then they want to start ramping up manufacturing in parallel so that by the time something is definitely confirmed to work, you already have millions of doses of it ready to go. Purely because with the situation that we're in at the moment, it seems like getting an extra six months uh, without this vaccine is going to be worth millions of dollars to the extent where it's, it's worth ramping up that production before you even know whether something works uh, is the consideration at the moment. So I presume, I guess, that AstraZeneca might be involved in that already. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they've put it on the university website that um, they made a press announcement that they've signed a contract. So what's next? So I'm going to go for some checkups, like a follow-up, you know, blood tests and urine tests. And I think that's about four weeks since the administration of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the meantime, I keep filling out that e-diary uh, and taking my temperature. They give me a thermometer. How great is that? Oh, that's nice. I have a thermometer now. Prices. It's kind of weird. It's like something that everyone probably should have at the moment. Because, for example, we're going to have this NHS contact app rolled out to the, us in this country next week. And supposedly everyone who has a fever or a dry cough is going to be told to key into the app that they have the symptoms and isolate. And that will tell everyone else to isolate. But it makes you wonder how many people even have a thermometer to know if they have something that's technically classed as a fever and how many people could identify what this dry cough thing is you know it, 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 yeah. it it's kind of bizarre right that um th this is being relied on so i hope that well maybe over the last 3 months thermometer scales will have gone through the roof anyway so people will be a bit yeah. more knowledgeable about what constitutes a fever because we've all become massive hypochondriacs about this thing <laughs> but yeah well for me i didn't had a i didn't had a thermometer before and when I mm -hmm. wanted to buy one, it was already too late because everything was kind of sold out. Um, so actually, now I have a thermometer and I'm very pleased about that. Um, but I mean, let me just say that I assume with the contact tracing app, the more people report the symptoms, the more data you have, then the more you can, you know, rule out statistical outliers, someone that thought they have something. Yeah, so it's actually interesting. I've, I'm writing about this at the moment and I've been reading about it this evening and without getting into too much detail because i'm going to cover this a bit later on but um they one of the things that the uk wants to do that other countries don't want to do is have a centralized database where they keep track of people's contacts and part of the reason for that is that they think they're going to be able to statistically exclude people uh who are reporting symptoms based on the pattern by which their contacts report symptoms so in other words like if, if you report symptoms, it will tell everyone you've been in contact with to isolate for a couple of days, and then they'll do the analysis. And if it turns out that no one is getting sick around you, then maybe you don't have coronavirus, in which case they will tell them to you know stand down and they can go back to going into contact with people as normal. Um, 
but there's a lot of controversy about whether this is going to work this centralized model versus the decentralized model that um, other countries and other apps have been using so it's not really clear what's eventually going to be rolled out to us or if it is going to be next week and, and so on but yeah you would hope that they will work out ways of preventing people from either reporting that they're sick lots of times in good faith because they think they are or because they have a propensity to get colds or whatever mm. or worse uh, sabotaging people's private and personal lives by like hanging out with them for half an hour on the day before their wedding or something and then saying oh i'm sick you have to isolate yourself sorry no wedding for you type thing um so yeah there's 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 Who would do so that? much that's like some crazy that's some crazy shit to be doing yeah, I, I suppose it's kind of disturbing that I did think of this as an option. Who's I'm not going to actually do it. it but... <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's the it's the 2020 version of I object is just like I have coronavirus. Sorry, everyone, time to go home. But yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where this has never been attempted before, and it's really hard to see how they're going to launch it and not have it. It's such a weird example. You can't even have gatherings now. I can't believe that's the example they've chose. A wedding. Well, that was, that's just my example. But that, I think the point is that once this thing is going, supposedly, cases will be down low enough that we will be able to have gatherings again. And this will be uh, to prevent any more resurgences or outbreaks in the future. But uh, but who knows? So so anyway, returning to the, the, the vaccine, um, I guess the first test that you'll have is going to be just to check if you have actually made antibodies, because supposedly it takes... Uh, two to three weeks between being exposed to a virus uh, for your immune system to actually seroconvert or make antibodies. So Yeah, and, and probably that's why um, I'm going in for blood tests. And and then is there any long-term follow-up? Are they, are they looking into you? Or is it just the case that you have to tell them if you ever get coronavirus after a certain... You do have to report, uh, fill out the e-diary and keep in touch. Um, and there's another follow-up in one year's time, but that one is optional. Uh, I think I'll do it just because I'm a geek. I think more data is better. <laughs> so I just want to provide another data point for them. So I'll probably do it. Okay. Well, that's really good. So, yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience? <laughs> um, you talk funny. Your voice <laughs> is different. Uh, your, your voice is different on the record. Okay, everyone Everyone has to now meet me in real life to figure out how my voice is different on or off the record um, and whether I'm putting on like some super high-pitched journalist presenter's voice. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, I'd like, to say, <laughs> I'd like to say just on behalf of everyone, you know, thank you for getting vaccinated and getting involved in the trial. I think there, there's an argument that it's like no, no lose because you will get medical follow-ups and stuff that other people won't have but at the same time lots of people consider this risky i remember even the guardian science writer had some article saying feeling brave do you want to join the vaccine trial or whatever so i think it's worth saying that yeah you've taken some level of risk here on behalf of uh the world population so thanks for that right well i mean i guess one of my coping mechanisms is to try to feel helpful and to try to focus on the community around me. So while I've definitely been focusing more on the community offline and, you know, the actual people that you know, my street, my neighborhood, etc. Um, this is another thing that I thought I could do um, in order to, to help contribute and to feel useful because my PhD is not directly applicable to, well, to anything really. 
Um, <laughs> so I think lots of us have the same feeling at the moment. Like everyone who's not working in virology or epidemiology is suddenly like, damn, I can't help. Yeah, so it's just nice to feel helpful. It's it's a it's a coping strategy. Um, and another thing was, I mean, this was a calculated risk. They do provided they provided thirty pages of information. They've made sure a thousand like they've asked me again and again and again like, are you okay with this? Are you happy with this? Did you understand this information? Tell it back to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it was definitely a calculated risk. I'm not saying it was not a risk, but it was definitely a calculated risk on my behalf. Um, and while I can't, you know, reproduce fancy stats off the top of my head, when I read the document, I felt like I was sufficiently scientifically literate to make an informed choice. Yeah, that's good to know. And it's obviously really important when it comes to issues of medical ethics. I mean, for me, with this particular vaccine, the fact that they've done a similar one for MERS, which is more deadly, and they haven't had any reported problems from that, would have made me feel a bit more reassured. Um, that even in the worst case scenario, nothing that bad was likely to happen. Um, but even so, you know, obviously the word unprecedented is seeing an unprecedented uh, number of uses at the moment. And anyone who thinks they can predict exactly what will happen, you know, is being shown up a lot at the moment. So, um, so yeah, I think. Yeah, it's, I it's think a, I, I was personally, yeah, I was personally really encouraged by the monkey studies. Um, the mm -hmm. fact that it was quite clear that the monkeys, you know, they were administered this and had no huge side effects, no side effects really. And then when the challenge results came in, I thought that was kind of encouraging enough um, for me to sort of um, say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and giving up your time. And thank you very much for having me. And thanks very much for Dana for coming on the show and telling us about her experience with the vaccine trial, and hopefully it all goes well. I'm now going to move on and talk about some new data. So the first paper I want to talk about is one called Open Safely, Factors Associated with COVID-19-Related Hospital Death in the Linked Electronic Health Records of 17 Million Adult NHS Patients. So this is a paper from here in the UK. It essentially looks through the death statistics from the first 6,000 or so who died here, and it does what's called a Cox multivariate regression to try and determine risk ratios. In other words, what we're trying to do here is disaggregate a lot of different factors and see which ones are most associated with dying from the virus once you get sick. Now, this kind of analysis isn't free from flaws. Lots of things, such as socioeconomic factors, risk of exposure, they're more difficult to correct for, but it does give us an insight into which factors are really more risky for COVID-19, and so it's important in determining who's vulnerable. The final point to make here is that these are really statistical associations, but we can't say whether they have a causal effect. For example, you might find a statistical association between someone's likelihood of dying of COVID and their postcode, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the postcode caused them to die. There are confounding factors to consider, and something known as Table 2 fallacy, which essentially means that we can't know for sure whether these things are causing the increased risk of mortality or not, even with our fancy statistical regression. So you should view this more of a description as trends in the data rather than an analysis of what's causing what. For the sake of going through this, I will ignore that and say things like more likely than and so on, even though it's not particularly precise or correct to do so. If you like, you can substitute more likely for statistically associated with. So I want to say, read the paper, read the caveats, and realise that none of this is precise. Um, but the reason I mention it is that I gave some indications in the first ever episode we did on this about things that made you at risk. Now we have some better data, so I want to emphasise that. Some quick results then. The baseline person for comparison is a white woman in her 50s. So this is how we define the risk ratio. So a risk ratio of two here means that this person is twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as our baseline person. A 
assuming all else is equal, and trying to correct for age in various other pre-existing conditions. So we now have some interesting notes from this study then. We can see that being male is twice as associated of death with COVID-19. Being obese increases this risk by about 27%, up to two times as likely depending on how obese you are. Former smokers appear to be Former smokers appear to have around 25% more risk than uh, other members of the population. Um, despite what we thought earlier, according to this analysis, high blood pressure on its own, all other things being equal, has very little effect, it seems. Asthma has a tiny effect, maybe only 10-20% to 20 more associated with mortality. Diabetes, if well controlled, boosts your risk by around 50% compared to more than doubling it if you have uncontrolled diabetes. There are other aspects I can list here, but basically pretty much any pre-existing condition, including liver issues, a stroke, cancers, immunosuppression, and so on, boosts your association with, uh, with mortality here by around 50-70%. to 70%. So why do I mention all of this in such detail? The point is then to talk about the difference that age makes as a comparison. So according to this study, if you're between 18 and 40, uh, that's only 7% as associated uh, with death as a baseline case, the woman in her 50s. So... If you're in your 40s uh, yourself, that's, that's a third as likely. If you're in your 60s, it's twice as likely. If you're in your 70s, it's five times as likely. And if you're in your 80s, it's 12 times as likely. So the real point that I draw from this paper, at least, is that the dominant factor here is certainly a person's age. Having a pre-existing condition might be 20, 30, 40, 50% more associated with death. So that's 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 times as likely. But that's nothing compared to being say, over 40, which makes you 14 times as likely to die from COVID-19 compared to someone under 40. Now, these risk ratios stack up, obviously, the older you are, the more pre-existing conditions you have, and so forth. So these ratios can multiply together, and that effect can get quite alarming. So, for example, a man in his 80s uh, would multiply 2 for the male factor and 12 for the 80s factor, working out as perhaps 24 times more associated with uh, mortality from the disease as a woman in her 50s and a staggering 336 times more associated with death than a woman in her 20s or 30s. So it seems really morbid to dwell on this excessively, but I think in many ways this information is really important so that each of us can make decisions in our personal lives and understand who's most at risk. And the headline is that being older really is the dominant factor here. I've heard it said now that plenty of people in their 70s are fit, active and healthy, should they be allowed out now? Maybe that's you or someone you know. The evidence so far is unfortunately that this really is the dominant factor here is age compared to pre-existing conditions. Um, so you have to understand that older people, even though they are fit and active and healthy, are still likely to be more at risk than younger people with comorbidities and pre-existing conditions. That's what it seems like from this report. So there's no room to let up on, on grounds of health if, uh, if you or someone you know is in those older age brackets. Since we're being morbid, I want to talk about the fatality rate for COVID-19. Previous listeners to the show will know that I've talked about it probably being about 0.66% due to the Imperial College report, estimates on the severity of COVID-19 disease. Um, I wish I could be more precise on that now, but estimates continue to be all over the place. You can find a huge range of them on the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine page called Global COVID-19 Case Fatality Rates, including the methods by which they're all being calculated. All I can say is that so far I haven't really seen much that conclusively shifts this estimate away from the sort of range that we were thinking about, maybe between 0.3% to 0.8%, uh, 1% would be surprising, somewhere in that range. Now that's a distressingly large range even now, so I'll give it a little bit of justification. Um, first off, some people have been arguing for a much, much lower fatality rate, less than 0.1% or comparable to seasonal flu. 
this is a silly comparison. This is a totally new disease, no treatments, no immunity. Seasonal flu is endemic in the population. It circulates all the times, which means that millions... It circulates all the time, which means that millions of people around the world have flu even during the summer. Um, the flu, seasonal flu epidemics that we get in the winter are just increases in the rate of incidence um, that rises during flu season. And maybe in a bad flu season, 5 to 10% of people might get sick which is nothing compared to the much larger percentages of people who could be sickened in a pandemic of a new disease that spreads very quickly with no immunity at all. So it's obviously not comparing apples with apples, even if the mortality rate was exactly the same. And the idea that it is the same seems hard to justify to me. As of today, when I'm writing this in the first week of May, around 0.1% of people in New Jersey, 0.13% uh, of people in New York State have died. Uh, more, Moreover, around 0.07% of people in the entire country of Belgium and 0.05% of people in Spain and Italy have died. So if you think there's a mortality rate of 0.1%, then you have to think that more than 100% of people in New York and New Jersey have been affected, and pretty much everyone in Belgium, Spain, Italy and the UK have been as well. And that just doesn't match up with what we're seeing in the early serology tests that we've done. It doesn't match up with reported experience or models of how quickly we'd expect the disease to grow. I really don't think it's likely. Um, one of the worst hit regions in the world is Guayas province in Ecuador. There have been around 11,000 extra deaths there this year, which are likely related to COVID. Now, that region has a population of 3 million, so you can extrapolate that loosely and say that that would correspond to 200,000, 300,000 deaths in the UK and over a million in the US if the same mortality rate occurred here. Now, obviously, there are differences between countries, demographically, healthcare-wise, and so on, but it seems hard to square very low estimates of the mortality rate uh, and an illness that is much less severe than we thought, with what unfortunately we have already observed happening in places around the world. So COVID-19 is still not the flu. Now, by this time in May, I was really hoping that we would have some really good serology antibody testing to talk about, and there's a lot more out there than there was, but sadly there still isn't, in my mind, a single brilliant, totally randomised study that I'm completely happy with, which has been peer-reviewed and which has used a test that is proved to be highly accurate. Instead, there's loads of smaller piecemeal ones coming in, dribs and drabs from all over the world. These are being announced in press releases rather than academic papers, sometimes with dodgy sampling and dodgy tests. Some of the tests that are being used are still only 98% specific. And as we said before, if the prevalence of real cases of COVID-19 is 2% and your test is 98% specific, you'll have as many false positives as true positives. So your results are just garbage at this stage. Um, some of these results have different problems, these studies. So for example, they use samples of convenience. Many studies have been on blood donors, because they have the blood. Others have been on healthcare workers or pregnant women, because they're coming into hospitals. These are interesting in their own right, but obviously it becomes very hard to extrapolate from these to try and figure out the overall prevalence of the disease or the fatality rate. Um, healthcare workers are more likely to be exposed. Blood donors are less likely to be unwell or elderly, and some people are excluded from giving blood. So these aren't fair samples. So you can't say much about the general population from them. Now, another tricky aspect arises from how people have tried to convert these estimates from serology testing, from antibody testing, into fatality rates. We know that it takes people a while to seroconvert or end up with antibodies in their blood, uh, two or three weeks perhaps. We know that a very small fraction of people won't end up with antibodies after an infection, of which more later. And this time that it takes to develop antibodies doesn't exactly line up with the death rate. So we don't really know from a test, which can only tell you whether someone does or doesn't have antibodies, when they were sick and when they would have died. Every country is reporting death in a different way. Some of them are clearly under-testing and haven't identified every single death from COVID-19. Others might be overestimating it, we don't know. So estimating fatality rates has even more uncertainty. 
For example, here in the UK, we suspect that as many as 50,000 might have died in this epidemic so far, when official figures record just 30,000, and that could be due to lack of testing, it could be misattribution of deaths, it could be that people aren't sure, but it's hard to know whether these excess deaths are from other causes. So it's hard to infer too much from these studies, particularly if you're going to try and convert how widespread the disease is, the evidence there, to fatality rates. That said, I will pull out a few. So Stringini et al. found that around 10% of people in Geneva have coronavirus antibodies and inferred a fatality rate of around 0.5%. The ongoing testing in New York City suggests perhaps 20% of people there have had it and maybe 0.77% have died. Uh, Wuhan claims 10% infected and 0.36% fatality rate. Iceland's continuous sampling suggests a fatality rate of around 0.2% there and so on and so on. There are rumours, according to BuzzFeed, that the UK's early antibody testing has suggested the numbers who have COVID are in the low teens or high single figures. So you can find plenty of studies here to back up virtually everything you want, but the general idea is that few places have been so badly affected that more than 20% of people have been infected, 10% is more typical for regions that have had quite bad epidemics, and only a few percentages in regions that haven't been especially badly hit so far. Finally, I should also refer you to a paper called A Systematic Review on Meta-Analysis of Published Research Data on COVID-19 Infection Fatality Rates. This is by some researchers from Australia. They compile several different research studies that have been done so far into the IFR, and they come to an estimate of around 0.75%, uh, and its confidence interval is 0.5% to 1%. So, again, this paper is not really dragging us outside of the sort of region that we thought initially, uh, when lockdowns and so on started, was going to be the fatality rate. So what's the general consensus here? It seems likely in most countries that have been really visibly affected, 3-10% to 10 higher in badly hit cities have had coronavirus. Antibody testing is providing some hope that the fatality rate is lower than we thought, and it's fairly typical for pandemics for these estimates for fatality rate to come down over time. We've seen this with MERS, SARS, swine flu and so on in the past. But it's worth pointing out that despite what some people want to spin this as, it's not really unexpected, and the type of estimate that was used by Imperial at the end of March doesn't suddenly look like a massive overestimate to me. Now, it's worth saying that there are obviously a lot of people out there who have seen these crude case fatality rates, these estimates of a few percent that flew around like wildfire in the early days, and these were obviously never going to be the infection fatality rate because they don't count asymptomatic cases and they don't count mild cases, only confirmed cases. Um, so thank goodness obviously these 2 or 3% figures were not true but they were never supposed to be true, and I don't think many people gave them too much credibility, uh, particularly as we've learned more and more about this virus. But unfortunately, I don't think we've seen overwhelming evidence that this is much, much less worse than we thought it was a month ago. As ever, I'd love to be wrong on this, because my faith in the world's governments to actually contain this thing and prevent most of the people who are going to get it from getting it has waned quite a lot recently, on which more later. Something else I'd like to talk about is some subtleties on the relationship between R0, the basic reproduction number, and the total fraction of the population that might get infected from the virus. So previously we've told you this idea that uh, the basic reproduction number is the number of people who one person will go on to infect. And you can do a really, really basic model and say herd immunity kicks in when 1 minus 1 over R0 percent of the population has been infected. And the logic behind this is pretty sound. So you can imagine that if R is 2, you're infecting two other people on average. If you mix equally with everyone, and half of everyone is immune to the virus, then you're effectively only meeting one of those two people who you can infect. So R will be effectively 1, and the disease won't grow on average. 
So an R equals 2 would give you herd immunity kicking in at 50%, an R equals 3 would give you herd immunity kicking in at 67%, and so on. But obviously, there are some important caveats to this and examples of where this is an oversimplification that I want to talk about. Because this is really an equilibrium situation which says, okay, what happens if an outbreak starts when 67% of people are immune already? And, of course, it's using a very naive model where everyone mixes with each other equally, and we know that that's not how reality works. The actual dynamics of how epidemics evolve can be different. Now, these are more active areas of epidemiological debate, so I'll try and discuss them a little bit here. So one of these concepts is overshoot, which biological scientist Carl Bergstrom has explained on Twitter. Essentially, here's the argument. Imagine the disease spreads really quickly into a population. At its peak, maybe 20% of people are sick. So you cross that threshold of herd immunity, whether it's 67% infected, but you still have millions of sick people. Now, infections don't just magically stop because you've crossed the threshold of 67%. If R is 1, it still means that every person will infect one other person on average. So as the uh, epidemic is dying away, there's still a lot of people getting infected, and so the total area under that curve is going to be bigger than it would be otherwise. So, for example, imagine that uh, R is 0.5 and you start with 1 million infectious people. Then next time you'll have 500,000 people, 250,000 people, 125,000 people. Um, the mathematically minded amongst you will recognise the sum to infinity and realise that R equals 0.5 if it was constant, starting with 1 million infected, will ultimately infect another million people. 1 divided by 1 minus R is the formula to calculate that. So the point here is that if you have millions of people infected when you cross that herd immunity threshold, continuing and declining infections are going to carry on infecting people and overshoot that threshold by quite a bit. And this will occur in epidemics that you don't control. And it's well known in the community. For example, you could read about this in a 2007 paper called What is the best control strategy for multiple infectious disease outbreaks by Handel et al. So perhaps, you know, we've talked about there being a threshold at 67%. If you just let the epidemic run and run and run and millions of people are infected, it's possible that more than 67% of people could get infected by the virus in this uncontrolled epidemic. However, there's a counterpoint here, which is that there are also people arguing that you could have herd immunity before that threshold of 1 minus 1 over R is reached. So for example, with R equals 3, you might have herd immunity established when less than 67% of people are infected. So how does this work? The argument here surrounds network effects and how important you think they are. In other words, our naive model assumes that everyone is mixing with each other equally. And so R equals 3 means that you'll meet and infect 3 people. If a third of people are immune, then your effective R will be 2, as 1 in every 3 people you meet are immune. So far so good if everyone mixes equally. But what if some people have more close contacts than others? Well, actually, these people are more likely to get infected and become immune first because they're the socialites who are buzzing around and uh, getting into lots of interactions. And so the natural progress of an epidemic infects the most efficient spreaders first, and you're more likely to meet these people. They will disproportionately show up in your close contacts because they're massive socialites, basically. So this is well known to epidemiologists. There's a great documentary that Hannah Fry did for BBC, the BBC4 pandemic experiment. You can get that on YouTube and it makes for good watching. Um, they simulated a pandemic there using phone apps in a village and one of the reasons they wanted to do this was to track contacts to see if some people did have a lot more contacts than others. Now the purpose of this is that it can help direct vaccination efforts. So if we know that there's some people who are like nodes in this network who for whatever reason spread the disease to more people, Maybe you can get away with vaccinating fewer people and get more bang for your buck with a vaccine. 
This is called heterogeneity, the idea that not all people in the model are alike, and some spread the disease more than others, and this could be due to biological or social contact reasons. So this idea and related ideas are dealt with in a new preprint which is called Individual Variation in Susceptibility or Exposure to SARS-CoV-2 Lowers the Herd Immunity Threshold. And that's by Dr. Gabriela Gomez et al. And the point they make is that these people who have much more exposure to COVID or are more susceptible to the disease are likely to get it first. Uh, these super spreaders, you might call them, whether because of biology or how much contact they have, will become immune first. And then being immune has a bigger impact on the virus's transmission than it would be if some random hermit who never meets anyone becomes immune, which essentially has no impact on the virus's transmission at all. So the big question is, how important actually is this effect? And clearly, without huge amounts of data about contacts, it's debatable. Dr. Gomez has been working on this issue of heterogeneity for many years, so naturally she would write papers in the context of this. So what does the Gomez et al. paper do? It introduces the idea that some infections might matter more than others into the model using a coefficient of variation. In other words, you don't assume everyone is equally susceptible to the virus, you assume there's some distribution of how susceptible people are. If you assume that everyone is equally susceptible, the herd immunity threshold is 67%. But if you assume that some people are up to four times more susceptible than others, then the herd immunity threshold can actually decrease to just 10 to 20%. So what happens here is you have 10 to 20% of people who disproportionately contact others. They're immune, and that could be enough to stop new outbreaks from happening, presuming you've controlled the one that you have at the moment. Now, with less variation, uh, this becomes more like 30, 40, 50%. There is a catch here, though, because R is just an average. So let's say one person is much more likely to infect others and has a greater R than the average person. This could be because they have more social contacts, or maybe they're someone who's more likely to go to work when they have symptoms or whatever, or it could be because their body, for whatever reason, naturally produces more virus. If some people naturally make more virus than others when they're infected, and are naturally more likely to infect you than others, uh, due to these biological factors, we don't necessarily know that those people are going to be the same as the people with lots of interactions who are more likely to infect you. And if that's totally random, then we also don't know that these people will necessarily get sick first. So, if the differences in people's personal R number arises for biological reasons that aren't related to the contacts they have, then this argument doesn't apply. Now there's another paper that makes a similar point, which is from Britain et al, a preprint on Archive. They model different age groups as having different transmission rates, and then they suggest that if the R is 2.5 for the virus, the herd immunity threshold might be 43% rather than 60%. So in their model, some age groups mix more than others, and they're more likely to be immune from catching coronavirus, because generally they're more social, they mix more, and so their immunity, again, disproportionately protects others. You can imagine all the young kids getting sick at school and then getting immune before they take a once yearly visit to the grandparents' house. Now, it's interesting to say that actually the Geneva Serology study has showed that uh, younger people are disproportionately more likely to have antibodies. So that's indicating that perhaps some of these effects with different age groups mixing in different levels could be important. Now, I have no idea whether the rates of contact really do vary that much, but it's clear there's ongoing debate in epidemiological communities about how important heterogeneity is. And it does stand to reason that these people who have lots of contacts will spread the disease more likely than everyone else, but they're also disproportionately affected in the first wave of the outbreak. And therefore, the people who are likely immune now are likely some of the people who would most efficiently transmit the disease. 
And perhaps this means that ultimately a substantially lower fraction of people will need to get sick for herd immunity to kick in. And I can see this in my own life, you know, my brother goes out a lot, he's very social, he thinks that he has had coronavirus. I tended to avoid a lot of people, especially in the early stages of this epidemic, and I don't think I've had it. So perhaps there's a sort of twin model between me and my brother where we can show that one of us is uh, one of these super spreaders who's now immune, and me, the hermit, is uh, less likely to be helping reduce the nation's R with immunity now. And frankly, this would be great news if it does turn out to be true, and I really hope that we actually are very heterogeneous humans, because anything that reduces the death rate from this pandemic would be excellent. Now, the Gomez paper makes the case that we should really be trying to measure this as much as we possibly can for COVID, whether some people are more susceptible than others, who has more contacts than everyone else, which could make all of these estimates more accurate. And this would give governments far more information about the most appropriate measures to take to deal with the pandemic. For example, in her toy model, if the coefficient of variation they choose there is three, then Italy's pandemic is basically already over, and there might not be second waves in that country in the future, providing they can control cases to a low level so that it's not spreading to areas that haven't seen the disease before. If the coefficient of variation is one, though, then they could have several uh, more waves just as deadly as the one that they've experienced. So Gomez, who spent her whole career studying heterogeneity, suggests that the CB is probably greater than one, and maybe between two and four, which would be good news but that we don't really have enough measurements of this pandemic, and especially this new virus yet, to know how much it does vary. So I can tell even from just outside the area of this, someone who's not an epidemiologist, I know how science works a little bit, and I can see that this is going to be an area of some huge debate with people arguing about how important the effect is. And it's worth saying that this is how lots of fields in the science work. You have models for all kinds of different reasons, at different levels of complexity. The very simple R0 model is just a toy model, and as you add in more and more layers, you get something that's more detailed and perhaps closer to reality, but it might also have more assumptions in that can make it more risky and further away from what happens. So there'll be things and effects that we don't know as well as where there is substantial disagreement. So we have a couple of arguments here that say the toy model is wrong. One is this idea of overshoot in an uncontrolled epidemic, and the other one is heterogeneity, which says, okay, we have this effect where people are disproportionately likely to be immune, uh, are the people who are mixing most and spreading the virus most. So I feel like I've outlined a couple of things that are really quite good news compared to our initial worst case scenario assessment. Um, herd immunity thresholds might be lower, and the infection fatality rate might also be lower. Um, th and broadly speaking, the serology tests are not suggesting that it's much higher than 0.66% and may indeed be lower. Despite this, when it comes to planning for a pandemic and acting on a potential disaster, I'm still of the opinion that you can't just have people assuming that things are going to work out okay. Sure, you could sit there in one of these meetings, which we'll discuss later, assuming that the death rate is as low as possible, R is as low as possible, and that heterogeneous effects mean that herd immunity will get established pretty quickly. You can make an extremely optimistic case that the virus won't be that bad, but that's still a pretty massive gamble to make with many, many people's lives. Some people are pointing to Sweden as a success, I hear this all the time. Sweden has stuck with the herd immunity strategy, essentially trying to mitigate the epidemic a bit, but accepting that spread to most people is inevitable. Now, Sweden's death rate per million people is the sixth highest in the world, and some multiples higher than neighbouring Nordic countries. Sweden is also forecasted to have an economy that's going to shrink by about 7% according to their central bank, again according to this flawed GDP measure, but that's the one everyone uses, so... The point I'm making here is that this is similar to countries that lock down. The UK and Germany are also expected to contract by 7% according to the IMF. So 
you'll see memes that say Sweden has avoided lockdown, saved their economy, and they've had great success. I don't think that's backed up by the data at all. They've had more deaths than other countries, and their economy is still going to shrink. It may well turn out in the fullness of time that the country does well, particularly if a vaccine takes many, many years to arise, and most of the countries fail in their efforts to contain uh, future waves of the epidemic. But also it's worth saying Sweden is still undergoing social distancing, it's still experiencing a very severe economic hit due to uncertainty and disruption. It's hard to say that anyone is doing that well, although of course some countries are doing better than others. Hindsight is going to be 2020 when it comes to which policy is the best to enact. But what I think is certainly the case is that a much earlier lockdown than we had in the UK and the US would have given us many more options on how to deal with this, and for that reason alone I think it would have been worth doing. So there are some other factors of the science that I want to discuss. First off, there's been from the very start of this thing rumours about people being reinfected with the virus. It seems, according to the latest news out of South Korea, people who tested positive twice were either testing errors or down to a single infection that never entirely went away. Dr. Omun Dong of Seoul National University, he explained, essentially, when viruses are fought off, there's a lot of debris floating around viral RNA, fragments of dead virus, and the current fairly crude form of testing can pick this up. Uh, subsequent testing has actually confirmed and found that this viral RNA that floats around after you've recovered can lead to false positives on the test. So it's likely that in almost all of these cases this is what is happening. And this is basically what virologists and biologists expected to be the case. But it's still good news, I suppose you can never really be 100% certain with a totally novel virus, even though you might have some expectations for how things might behave. Now we also want to talk about immunity. This is a really complicated area and one that I'm learning more about all the time. I have to thank This Week in Virology podcast for educating me on some of these issues because I didn't have too much of an idea about a lot of what I've learned. So that comes highly recommended for people who have an interest in these things. So first off, a priori, without knowing anything about this coronavirus, what do we know? Well, we know from other coronaviruses that you generally do get some kind of immunity from infection and it probably lasts about a year. Like other viruses, other infections, when you fight it off, your immune system learns to produce antibodies that destroy the specific pathogen. A paper from 2007 called Duration of Antibody Responses After Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome showed that two years after infection from SARS, people still had significant levels of antibodies, but they began to decline after the third year, which suggests that maybe immunity doesn't last forever. And there's a really old paper, The Time Course of the Immune Response to Experimental Coronavirus Infection of Man, from 1990, which... Uh, now, I thought this had been superseded by better research, but I was looking through the government documents and they actually cite this paper as evidence that people are probably immune to the new coronavirus uh, earlier this year. So it's interesting to see that we found the same papers when we googled uh, historical uh, arguments for whether people are immune to coronaviruses. And basically, what happened here was they infected people with a virus that causes the common cold, which is a coronavirus. And it also gave you some immunity. People who developed colds when they were infected with the virus were more immune and if you reintroduce the virus to them after a year, they didn't develop colds again. Their bodies had higher concentrations of antibody. Some of them were asymptomatically infected, but they didn't get the full-blown disease again. So our expectation should be that this is probably not some magical new virus. If it behaves like other viruses, like other coronaviruses, we'd expect people who are infected to have some level of immunity. It might not mean you could never get a milder version of the same illness or an asymptomatic infection, but you're likely to be immune to some degree. And as time goes on, the immunity probably diminishes. Now clearly we can't do one-year follow-up studies on COVID-19 patients like they did with SARS or this common cold virus, because a year hasn't passed since the first person got it. So any honest scientist would have to tell you, we can't know for sure how long immunity lasts, 
or how high levels of antibodies might last for because we can't take those measurements. But it seems likely that there are immune responses taking place here. And this is good, obviously, because without this natural immune response that works, we can't really see how a vaccine could work. Now, a paper from Florian Kramer and colleagues came out, and this is called Humoral Immune Response and Prolonged PCR Positivity in a Cohort of 1,343 SARS-CoV-2 Patients in the New York City region. And what they did was they antibody tested the blood from 1,300 people in New York City. Now, there are some interesting aspects to point out from this paper. First off, they noticed that of the patients who thought they'd had COVID but hadn't been tested, only a third of them were actually correct and had had the virus. So a lot more people think they've had coronavirus than actually have, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Secondly, they tested the blood for antibodies from 571 people who had confirmed and tested positive for coronavirus. And of those patients, 99.5% had antibodies, while only 0.5% did not. According to Kramer, this is very similar to flu. A tiny fraction of people, for whatever reason, don't make antibodies, but that's kind of normal for viruses. The vast majority of people do, and one thing that's really interesting here is that most people made antibodies regardless of whether they had a severe case of coronavirus or not. People with mild symptoms were making antibodies as well. So to summarise, we know other coronaviruses affect humans and there's some level of immunity or protection which lasts around a year. We know that nearly everyone who gets coronavirus produces antibodies against it. We know that small virus fractions of RNA can remain around and trick the test into giving false positives after someone has recovered, which looks like a reinfection. And we know that quarantining people together who are sick seems to work. People don't just continuously infect each other, as you might expect if there was no immunity. So it's increasingly clear reinfection is very rare, even though it might happen on very rare occasions. And you probably are immune to the virus for quite a while after getting it. Even though the test that we're using at the moment might not be accurate enough for immunity passports, and we don't know how long immunity lasts. So this is good news, really. It's what we all expected, but it's good news and should assuage a lot of fears around reinfection that people have talked about. Let me address a few other news stories and, I think, fallacies that have been floating around. There's speculation that kids don't get coronavirus. It seems to be clear that in most cases, thank goodness, kids have mild symptoms if they have any symptoms, but a recent paper by German virologist Christian Drosten called An Analysis of SARS-CoV-2 Viral Load by Patient Age shows that children who get sick make a similar amount of virus in their bodies than adults do, even though they might have milder symptoms. A huge aspect of your symptoms when you're infected is actually the immune system responding to viral infection rather than a direct result of the infection itself. So if your immune system responds in a different way, then you might have just as much virus in you but feel less sick. Now, there's another study too, which is called Changes in Contact Patterns Shape the Dynamics of COVID-19 Transmission. And this is out of uh, an analysis of the outbreak in China published in Science. And this suggests that children are less likely to become infected when they're exposed to the virus um, because of the contact tracing that they did, they found that children who had exposures seemed to be less likely to test positive than adults. And there's also plenty of anecdotal evidence of kids not showing up as contacts who've passed the disease onto adults. So what can we make of this? It seems certainly to be the case that when children get COVID-19, they're much more likely to have no symptoms or mild symptoms compared to getting severely ill. Now that probably does reduce your chances of spreading the disease quite a bit, but not entirely. And we know that kids are still getting sick and they are manufacturing the virus and they can probably spread the disease. But it's hard to turn this into an exact prescription for what to do. Kids might have milder illnesses and they might even be harder to infect in the first place. But it's more difficult for kids to follow social distancing and the mild cases might be more responsible for transmission. 
If someone has a fever and a dry cough right now, they should be isolating themselves straight away. Everyone around them should be getting tested. But if kids only get mild symptoms which go unnoticed, it could be that they're better transmitters than people who get noticeably ill, because they'll have more contacts when they're ill, even though each contact might be less likely to transmit the disease. Kids are certainly not immune to this, they do get it, and we don't know for sure yet how much transmission they are responsible for, although there is some evidence suggesting that it might be less than adults. So in this circumstance, it's very difficult to make any statement on school closures. I don't think we can rush in and say, oh, it doesn't affect kids, open the schools. Troublingly, there are reports of a very small number of cases of something that loosely resembles Kawasaki disease or toxic shock associated with COVID-19 in children. This has been reported in 64 kids and teenagers in New York State and was reported by the NHS at the end of April. Now, this is very, very rare. There were perhaps 400,000 kids in New York State who have had COVID-19 already, and only 64 out of 400,000 have developed this condition. The symptoms are fever, red eyes, general swelling and inflammation, perhaps a rash. Now, statistically speaking, it's virtually impossible that anyone listening to this is going to encounter a child with this condition. But if you do, it is something that needs urgent care, so keep an eye out for that. There are other potential conditions that are frankly extremely rare but will be observed and will probably be blown up by the media into some massive news story which will make the likelihood of such an event seem to be much higher than medical science seems to justify. I urge people to remember Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, the, the book where they point out that one of the logical fallacies is that the more in-depth you describe a risk, the more detail you describe a risk in, the more likely people are to perceive it as high risk. So for example you can get people to buy more expensive insurance for a flight by describing in detail all of the different things they're insured against, rather than making some generic claim that you're insured against anything bad from happening. So you're reading lurid stories of people who have had very rare outcomes from coronavirus, and you will perceive that as much more likely than it is. And it's very difficult to actually correct your brain and sort of understand it from the statistical sense, because naturally we don't work uh, with numbers uh, predominantly in how we perceive things. We're much more focused on stories, I think. But we know that in extremely rare cases, uh, most viruses can attack the central nervous system and cause swelling of the brain, encephalitis. This has been observed in a tiny handful of the millions of people around the world who have COVID-19. It's very unlucky, but when you multiply these really low numbers by millions of people who have the virus, a few rare events will happen, unfortunately. But unless it starts to become extremely common, I wouldn't dwell on this kind of thing too much. We could all get struck by lightning, but generally we try not to let it bother us too much.